Welcome to the Falk Salem Podcast. Each month we'll bring you a mix of operational announcements and clinical pieces to keep you up to speed. Through our monthly podcasts, our goal is to put the tools and education right in the palm of your hand. By keeping you up to date, we hope that we can empower you to continue bringing exceptional medical care to the city of Salem and beyond. Any and all material we release has been edited to comply with HIPAA standards. Hello and welcome to this next installment of our case reviews with our own Dr. Clothier. Each month, Dr. Clothier brings topics to us from the world of emergency medicine, either from the ER or from his experience uh, working as a medical director here. And our hope is to impart some knowledge uh, from another perspective, especially one who strives so much to make positive influences in how the field of emergency medicine applies what we do uh, in our everyday tasks. So look for um, our case reviews uh, coming each month, perhaps with some uh, knowledge and wisdom and uh, ideas of how you can apply this to your own medical practice every single day. So without further ado, Welcome, Dr. Clothier, and thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us here today. Hi, Cole. Hi, everybody. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit today about a patient that I may have recently uh, seen. She was a lady in her late 70s. She called 911 after several weeks of worsening fatigue and shortness of breath. She'd been to doctor's offices and to one ER already, but they had failed to identify a cause. Finally, things had gotten to the point where she just couldn't breathe anymore, so she called 911 for help. Uh, en route to her local ER, she developed syncope and hypotension, which prompted the EMS crew to pull over at a critical access hospital for some stabilization. And while there, an astute provider put an ultrasound probe on her chest and identified a large pericardial effusion with tamponade physiology. They emergently made arrangements to transfer the patient to a facility that had cardiology and CT surgery capability for definitive care. So Cole, put yourself in the shoes of this crew and kind of tell me what sort of things are you thinking about as you're being asked to transfer a patient with tamponade physiology? Well, I kind of climb back into school and I start thinking about Beck's triad and this trifecta of things I should be looking for. So I should be looking for like tachycardia. I should be looking for the muffled heart tones and I should be looking for the JVD. But once again, like if I didn't know that a person had a tamponade, those can be really subtle signs and easily missed, especially the JVD if it doesn't really pop out to me. But if I knew that they had this sort of a, a physiology, I guess my, my first and most critical question would be, if things go south, what am I going to do? Because I can't just load them up with fluid. I can't, even if I'm pumping on their chest and doing CPR, that tamponade, I mean, it takes my legs out from underneath me, even with CPR. Uh, I, I think first I'd be very uh, wary about that transfer. That's a scary one for sure. Right? Yeah, that's always got to be the first question in the care of any patient is what am I going to do when things go south? And you're absolutely right. Uh, I'll throw in hypotension as well, one of those signs of uh, pericardial tamponade or tamponade physiology. And as you point out, there's really only one treatment for it. 
and it's not IV fluids and it's not chest compressions. It's it to wouldn't even be epinephrine. It wouldn't even be pressors, right? Right. The heart, the pump is floundering. The, the pump can't actually fill up and eject the blood out of the other side. So the, the blood is in the gap between the heart muscle and the pericardial sac and it's congested that heart to the point where it can't fill up and expand itself out. So it's pumping out fractions of the amount of blood as it used to. That's precisely right. So, yeah. So you've got to think about exactly as you said, if this gets worse, what am I supposed to do in route? And the answer is you don't have much. So I would turn the question maybe to, are there stabilizing things that could be done at the transferring facility before transfer. So I would ask the question, does this patient need a pericardiocentesis prior to the transfer? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what would make sense to me is vent out what you can. And I mean, if if they can at least do something to buy us a bit more time, I mean, we, we're, we don't even have much to be able to like monitor in it, like a, an increase in the amount of fluid that might be there you know, like point of care, uh, ultrasound or anything like that. We're just basing this on clinical presentation. Do you look sick? Are you getting sicker? And trended blood pressures that are just continually, uh, I'd imagine narrowing pulse pressures on this. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, absolutely. That gives me tachycardia sitting here thinking about that. <laughs> it's certainly one of those times in medicine where it's best to act before the patient goes into cardiac arrest rather than after because you're really behind the eight ball. At the time when your patient's heart stops or they stop breathing or their airway becomes completely obstructed or they develop full-fledged tamponade, you're already behind the eight ball and you know you've uh, waited too long to do your intervention. So I, I think it's also useful to try to figure out what might be causing the tamponade or that pericardial effusion. Uh, for example, if the patient's having an acute MI, if they've got a, a free wall rupture of their left ventricle, uh, then your treatment for that patient is gonna be very different than somebody who's uremic or somebody who has cancer or see if you can ascertain over what time period this effusion developed. If uh, this patient, like the patient I described to you, has had symptoms for weeks, well, you probably have 20 or 30 minutes to scoot over to a receiving facility and get him in the hands of a surgeon before you try the pericardiocentesis. But if it's, I don't know, a trauma patient or something, or a tamponade that has developed over the course of hours, you probably don't have that kind of time. I see. Now. Um, I, I've talked to students in the past about, you know, we're just running scenarios in the back of the ambulance, prepping for the day, uh, doing things like that. And I'll, I'll give them the, the typical car accident patient, restrained driver, front end collision, the kind of the hit and stop sort of a collision. And they take the airbag to the chest. They take the seatbelt to the chest. They have that seatbelt sign there in place. I just ask them, hey, what are some major injuries I need to worry about? The big one that they always come up with is, well, they popped their lung. So I've got this developing pneumothorax and I've got to watch for that. And then we talk about like great vessel injuries and they may be bleeding in a place where I can't put pressure on it. Um, you know, they're referring to like the aorta or like a, the vena cavas, you know, and then we start talking a little bit about like musculoskeletal stuff and I stop them. And I'm like, Hey, 
what else could we injure here on the inside? And we start talking about the heart. We start talking about that injury to the heart. And it's, it's interesting that we don't, we don't think about this or train about this enough. It kind of is like this spider webbed thing in the back of your brain, you know, and then I start asking them like, Hey, what kind of symptoms would we see? And it's, you may even be uh, overwhelming on, on the EMS side to consider the pericardial tamponade because we're usually seeing other injuries or looking for things that we can fix. But when we identify these signs and we look at these things and we find this sort of like failing heart uh, that's happening here, you know, I, I really like our only option here is going to be diesel therapy and like getting them to the hospital. Is there anything else that we can do in the field prior to getting them there that, that we should be doing? No, I think it's fluids and diesel, but I've made the argument as repeatedly and as often as I can over the years that uh, I really expect uh, everybody that works with me to think as much as they possibly can. So I think asking the questions, for example, if the patient is uremic uh, and has acute kidney or acute on chronic kidney failure, what's the potassium? And does that potassium need to be treated? Could that potassium be the thing that precipitates a cardiac arrest, for example? Uh, what does the EKG look like? So if you have diffuse ST segment elevations in all leads, you're going to start thinking about pericarditis. pericarditis and that, yeah. Sure, sure. And that could be the cause of an effusion. Uh, but you might also see low voltage all the way through, which would indicate that you've got a fairly thick effusion there and you're having a hard time getting your electrical signals through. Interesting. Uh, I hadn't considered that. They're like low voltage QRSs in without any other identifiable cause that would be a, just we're getting interruptions in our signals there that could be transmitting through the fluid and that would interrupt our, our signal strength. These are all things that are best, unfortunately, best thought of in hindsight. Like you said, if I wasn't thinking about a tamponade, I don't know that I would even put together Beck's triad. But once I think of tamponade, then I can go back and obviously find the signs. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially when I start thinking about getting heart tones while driving emergent to the hospital with someone that I'm also worried about having a respiratory concern. But I would say, though, that if we are thinking about this and keeping an open mind and not ruling anything out if i have trauma that is likely to cause this or could cause this i need to understand that risk factor that i can't do much about it other than get them to someone early so if we can identify that in the field there's a lot of value in communicating that over the radio i have someone who has chest trauma i'm concerned about a tamponade i need a room that at least gets people thinking about that even from the hospital side so that it doesn't get buried and lost in in the weeds there Absolutely. And let's pop back to the EKG for one more thing. Your most common EKG finding in a patient with tamponade is going to be tachycardia. And that is because that's the most common EKG finding in any sick patient that you have. Obviously, there's yeah. debris dysrhythmias, but beyond that, the most common EKG finding in a pulmonary embolism is tachycardia. Right. In sepsis, it's tachycardia. So, you know, we see it all day long. We often uh, attribute it to things like anxiety or dehydration, but don't just let that abnormal heart rate roll over the top of you without thinking about, hmm, what else could this be pointing to? I gotcha. Now, treatments of this, um, from your point of view, how, what does that look like? A, a pericardial synthesis, is that a rare thing? And when you do that, what does that look like? 
Uh, it is a rare thing. We consider it one of those heroic procedures in emergency medicine where the ER doctor has to do something he doesn't routinely do because nobody else is there to do it. So, uh, you know, think of that like doing a crike uh, or uh, doing a, a perimortem C-section or something of that nature. A pericardiocentesis entails taking a large bore, long length spinal needle. I'm talking a needle about 20 centimeters long and you wow. attach it to a 20 cc syringe and you put it in just right below the xiphoid process and aim for the left shoulder. Uh, you can do it ultrasound guided and there's different landmarks, but the classical way was just to aim for that left shoulder and aspirate as you go until you get pericardial fluid back. And then and with what, your what, what's the rebound improvement of that? Is it like when we do a chest decompression that pressure is alleviated and immediately we start getting improvements in blood pressure and that sort of thing? Is it is it pretty quick? Yeah, within within minutes, you'll see the patient improve. Now, now we've put a hole, though, in the pericardial sac and hopefully not uh, touched the heart with that needle as well, causing another leaky port that might be there right if i put a hole in the ventricle then i've got another problem yeah so it's you want to hit it right at the right point but not go too far definitive therapy for this would be uh either having a cardiologist take the patient to the cath lab where they have all the equipment to see everything and they will put a pericardial drain in uh and just drain the fluid out uh slowly over time uh, and then your other option is to have a cardiothoracic surgeon put in what they call a pericardial window, where they literally just cut a window out of the pericardium to let the fluid drain that way. Gotcha. And so, um, you know, that's my treatment is to um, get a conversation going between those two, the CT surgeon and the cardiologist, and they can determine which they think is going to be the best approach for this particular patient. Now, obviously, if it's traumatic, as you alluded to earlier, if you've got a traumatic aortic dissection or a ruptured thoracic aortic aneurysm, for example, those folks, uh, no drain is going to help. If you're pumping blood out of the aorta into your pericardium, if you drain that, it's going to refill instantaneously while your patient circles the drain and rather precipitously dies. So. In that instance, I would not try an ER pericardiocentesis. I've just got to get that patient to the OR as quick as I can. Yeah, they just have to open up everything, pop the hood, find the problem, check the oil, that sort of stuff. All right, so what can we take from this? What, as an ER physician, and specifically as a medical director, I mean, you want us to have the pearls of your wisdom and you want us to not miss this in the field. What are the big things that you need us to know? As always, I think the biggest teaching point is to consider the diagnosis. And I don't know that you guys realize how much we anchor on the report that you give to us. Uh, you've all heard me talk about before how bad anchoring is and how it keeps us from making the right diagnosis. So I'm encouraging you to think about it. I'm encouraging you to understand what that tamponade physiology looks like and you know, dust off the cob cobwebs and remember Beck's triad and at least keep it in your differential. Um, as you alluded to earlier, you've got to think about the diagnosis. Where I work, chest pain is a cardiac rule out, a pulmonary embolism. But if I don't think about traumatic aortic physiology, if I don't think about pericardial physiology, uh, blunt cardiac injury, that sort of thing, then I'm gonna miss a lot of stuff. Uh, and probably lastly is make sure that the facility you're heading to 
has the capabilities to care for your patient. Uh, this case I described from the beginning, that uh, ambulance was headed for a larger hospital, but they knew that they were in trouble. And so they pulled over at the closest facility and got help. And we think about that with things like uh, somebody who's going to lose their airway, somebody with angioedema, where you've really just got to pull over and say, you're not my intended destination, but I need help and I need it now. And then they load the patient back up and head for their uh, intended facility. This is also one of those situations. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, this is this is really interesting stuff, and it just builds on good diagnostic care, good assessments, getting a good handoff report before we take a patient from another healthcare provider, or when we're seeing a patient in the field. I think maybe one of the other pearls that I'm learning from this is we need to get better at recognizing when we're over our head because especially as EMS providers, we can be a little cavalier, we can be a little type A, you know, nothing's gonna beat us, we're gonna win. But there are situations where we need a village and we need the right tools and training to jump in on this and it may be very time sensitive. This seems like a great example of one of those, I need to know when this is not, they need me to drive quickly and they don't need me to do much else. You know, we all start out in medicine in our childhood where we're a little scared going into these situations and then we enter the field and unfortunately we can become too much like uh, teenagers and adolescents and we know best and we don't need anybody's help. But then the older we get in medicine, all of us realize because we've seen so many things go wrong over the years, we realize just how much we need everybody else's help. And uh, I know as I continue to age and spend more time in medicine, I'm much, much, much more likely to call for help <laughs> early on before things really start getting sticky. That's good advice. Again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom and all this and uh, look forward to hearing from you again. Thanks, Cole. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Falk Salem podcast. We welcome any feedback you may have or if you have suggestions for future content, please send an email to Nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, dot Van Epps, V-A-N-E-P-P-S, at falc.com. Thank you for all your hard work and have a safe shift. <laughs>